This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. And nowadays, you don't have to get too far along your list of friends to get into a conversation with someone bitching about the media. You know what I'm talking about. Now, if your friend happens to be a left-leaning person, they're probably talking about conservative talk radio or Fox News. If they're a right-leaning person, they're probably talking about, uh, well, everything else. Just a, a feature of modern life that we all seem to prefer our own version of media and political comfort food, the kinds of things that appeal to our prefabbed sensibilities about the way the world should should work and kind of appeals to our own political ideology and notions. But my guest today, Isaac Saul, doesn't think that the media should function that way. He went out and founded the website Tangle, which is an independent, ad-free, nonpartisan newsletter and podcast that has been recognized by the New York Times, Forbes, and Substack as one of the most successful political newsletters on the internet. And I'm really interested in what this whole model means for the future of journalism and media and how we consume maybe something a little bit healthier than our usual political comfort food. So Isaac, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Matt. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And I think this is a topic that people are sort of comfortable thinking about and sort of not because we don't want to be pushed out of our well-worn grooves and, and our comfort zones. And I think that's very much what you're, you're looking to do. Am I right about that? I mean, what, what's sort of the founding story here? I mean, you, you come from a journalistic background. You're a, a, a well-recognized, seasoned political reporter. You've written for Time. You've written for Vox, Independent Journal Review. I'm reading off here. HuffPost. And, and your work, in 2016, Yahoo News named you as one of the 16 people whose writing shaped the 2016 election. You're having a big impact as a journalist, and yet you decided to put that behind and start your own thing. Why? And, and what problem are you trying to solve by doing that? It's a great question. So there, there are sort of two, I think, genesis moments for me. The first is just kind of my upbringing. I was raised in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Traditionally speaking, Bucks was a bellwether county. It's, it's a little bit blue now, but when I was growing up, it was considered a county that indicated which way the presidential election was going to go. Obviously, it was super critical to the state of Pennsylvania, which is critical to the national election. So we would get a ton of attention. And the reality of that on the ground means that I had a lot of friends from across the political spectrum. I grew up around people with very conservative views, very liberal views. I live in Brooklyn, New York today now, so I know what it's like to not be in that environment. And what, now that I'm an adult, half my friends from home are cops and firefighters and big Trump supporters, and half of them are in big tech or journalists or artsy people living in Brooklyn with me. So I, I really have this huge, broad spectrum of people that I love and care about out deeply. And I think that is just like a foundational thing that was really important for my worldview growing up. 
And then the second thing was what you kind of mentioned there at the top, which is that one of my, my very first job in media was at the Huffington Post. I did not work at the Huffington Post because I was like a total diehard bleeding heart liberal. I worked there because they offered me a job and getting a job in media is really, really hard and was really hard in 2014. And what I learned when I left the Huffington Post was that I was tagged. I mean, the, the moment that I started writing in other places, the first thing people would do was look me up. They would see that I worked at the Huffington Post. They would assume immediately a million different things about my political views and worldviews. And then depending on where they were on the political spectrum, they would just dismiss what I was arguing or writing or saying outright. And then I just witnessed this over and over again throughout my media career. So you mentioned Independent Journal Review. That's a pretty conservative publication for liberal intellectuals who are familiar with it. They go in skeptical reading something I would write or publish there. If something I said or something I posted about got cited by Fox News, I'd have friends who would feel a sense of sort of disgust or shame that Fox News was using my reporting to bolster an argument they were making. I just witnessed this over and over again. And so I realized something, I think a little bit before a lot of people started realizing it, but now it's kind of common knowledge, which is that we're all living in sort of curated media bubbles that reinforce our priors across the board. And my dream, my sort of vision for Tangle was I wanted to create a media space where people were constantly seeing things that were challenging their worldviews, that were challenging their perspectives. So the structure of the newsletter is that I just break down the main story of the day in the most neutral way possible. I, I, I use very neutral language. I just tell you kind of what's going on, what people are saying about this on both sides, what some of the baseline facts are, the statistics, whatever it is. And then I give you three of the best arguments I can find from conservative pundits and three of the best arguments I can find from liberal pundits, and then my take. And the result is that it doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum. If you read the whole newsletter top to bottom, you're going to see stuff that represents your view and you're going to see stuff that challenges your view. And the result is that I have a bunch of people from across the political spectrum who really love and appreciate my newsletter. Again, another great introductory thing you said at the top was about kind of this view people have of the media, whether they're on the left or the right, they complain about it, which is really true. And it's funny for my work because it's a business. I have to sell the newsletter to people. And so when I'm approaching a conservative or a conservative audience, my pitch is, I agree with you. The media sucks. I think it's really biased. And I think it's generally the institutional media is kind of left-leaning. And here I'm creating this something that's going to represent your worldview and also share some left-wing liberal perspectives that you can get kind of the whole thing in a balanced way. And when I go to liberals, I'm saying you are living in a total bubble and you can come read my newsletter and you'll understand why people voted for Trump or understand why people have conservative views. And it's sort of like these two different things that are a product of the same problem, but people are really receptive to it. And that's not to say conservatives don't live in a bubble too. They do, but it's just that that approach tends to work both sides in a really effective way. I think the fact that it is effective is one of the most interesting parts of your story. And, and you are up to over 30,000 daily readers at this point, which is, I mean, first of all, mazel tov. Second of all, I mean, I, I'm almost, this is gonna almost come off the wrong way. I find that surprising and, and, and maybe to be good news, like the best, the best part of this, because I agree, first of all, People say that they want to eat healthy food. They go to McDonald's every time. People say that they want 
balanced reporting, that they want to understand other worldviews. But it seems to me that the, the driving forces that lead people to consume media are either A, to confirm their previously held notions, or B, as you said, they kind of like if you're a liberal and you want to understand why people vote for Trump, you read these things for the same reasons, you know, you, you read other perspectives for the same reasons that people go to zoos. It's like, wow, look at look at the freakish things going on here. It's it's fascinating and weird. Thank goodness we don't live here. But you've you've managed to sort of split the difference in a sort of artful way. And people seem to really actually want to consume what you're offering. Were you surprised that there was such a big market for this approach? I was totally. I part of the story of how Tangle came to be was that I built it and started writing the newsletter and started doing this while I had a full-time job as an editor. And I basically worked 16 hour days for a year to get Tangle off the ground because I, I wasn't about to quit my job and roll the dice on this idea that Americans wanted to hear from the other side. I mean, I was I was very skeptical. I, I believed in the mission and I thought it was this really cool mission-oriented thing, but it wasn't until I had two or 3,000 subscribers and people were writing back to me saying like, dude, this is, I've been looking for this for so long that I was like, okay, there's something here. Clearly the, there's a proof of concept. People are really interested in it, but I've been blown away. And I think part of the bubble that I live in is that the 35,000 readers that I interact with every day, they are people who want to seek out the views of others. Mostly some of them are totally, you know, fringe partisans and they're angry after every email they get from me, but they keep reading. But a lot of them are people who are like really wanting to understand what the other side says. And so I'm seeing like a really awesome version of America, in my opinion, a really, really, really cool, smart, humble group of people who are interested in the arguments that are out there and are willing to read things that make them uncomfortable or that they don't like. And that is really encouraging to me because I've gotten to this point where I am mostly through just organic marketing, asking people to spread the word, forward the email to friends, share on social media. So these are people who are just like, my network started it and it's branching out from there. And that gives me a lot of hope. I think there's part of me, fingers crossed, that like maybe we've hit the rock bottom of the partisanship in America and we're bouncing back a little bit. But yeah, it is, a, it is to me a hopeful and surprising thing. So I share that view that you have for sure. Well, let's talk about what you are actually doing here. I, and maybe we could maybe we could kind of take a look at a specific. So first of all, people should go. We're going to put in the show notes. There's a, there's a specific link that we want people to go to because we want people to discover Tangle through this podcast. So we'll we'll put the we'll put the link in the show notes. If you're listening on podcast, then check it out there. If you're uh, listening on radio, I'm sorry, you're going to have to go to the show notes, find on whatever podcast platform you listen on, find Beyond Politics and look at the notes in this show. But the, the website is Tangle. It's it's on readtangle.com. I, I shouldn't give that out, but I guess people are capable of Googling themselves these days. So let's let's just look at a, at a recent one you did. I don't know. Why don't we, why don't we pick the, we're recording this on uh, Thursday, the 24th. Yesterday, your major post was on Katanji Brown Jackson's hearing. Maybe we could just walk through how you structure a post like that. First of all, you have some quick hits about other things going on in the news right up top. This is sort of an inversion of how the Daily, the New York Times podcast 
does it where at the very end they say, here's some other things going on. You say, look, this is the major news story of the day. But before we dive into it, here's other things you may want to just be aware of. And then you dive in and you give, it seems to me, you give the topic and then you give what the left is saying, you give what the right's saying, and then you give your take. You sort of call balls and strikes on it. So what, what suggested that approach to you? And, and do, you find that, do you find that it's sort of easy to construct things that way? Do, do issues break down well that way? It, it really depends. So there are times in the newsletter when I will do things like instead of what the left is saying and what the right is saying, I'll say on the one hand or on the other hand to sort of just get out of that partisan box. A good example of that that just happened recently was the daylight savings debate, which we mm. actually covered. The daylight saving, there's no S on that. I always mess that up. The daylight oh. saving debate, that was, yeah, I know. I just, I learned that. The more you the know. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. And so we, we looked at that debate since there was really bipartisan support for this bill, the Sunshine Act or whatever it was called, and, and bipartisan opposition to it. We, we got out of that left first right mold because I don't want to just break it down in that binary way. I don't want to reinforce that stuff if I don't have to. But generally speaking, a lot of the big debates do sort of fall into these more traditional conservative and liberal binaries where they're kind of battling with their, their ideas about how to proceed. So in the case of the Katanji, in the case of the Katanji Brown Jackson hearing, we had the left sort of criticizing how Republicans comported themselves during the hearing, blaming them for kind of focusing on culture war issues instead of asking about her judicial qualifications, and then the praise that Jackson was getting. That was sort of like the crux of the, of the issues that the left was harping on. And then the right was sort of saying Jackson got a much more respectful hearing than past conservative nominees like Amy Coney Barrett or Brett Kavanaugh got. They were arguing that her answers, which actually were very friendly to a lot of conservatives conservative judicial thought. She spoke a lot about textualism and originalism, which are usually linked to conservative justices, was proof that the kind of progressive judicial mindset and worldview had died out. And then a lot of people on the right wrote about how Jackson's love of America was apparent and that liberals could learn something from that because she wasn't all negative about how America is irredeemably racist and all these things. She was very positive about her view of America. And so that was kind of like the left and the right's take on the hearing, which is mostly what we focus it on. And then I gave my take, which was basically that I, I was not a fan of a lot of the Republican questions. I thought there was much more interesting stuff to dive into about her than her sentencing around child pornography issues, which they seem to just hammer and ask the same five questions over and over again to try and link her name to child pornography, which I thought was a really gross thing to do. And I, I basically called them out on that conceding, of course, that past Supreme Court hearings have gotten very ugly and very nasty. And this is sort of just the rotation that we're stuck in now. And, and then I just wrote about how I was impressed by what she said and her answers. And I love the fact that she expressed her love for America. And I love the fact that she seemed to be not fitting neatly into any ideological spectrum as a, as a justice. Like a lot of the conservatives said, she did really sort of hit all the keys of originalism and textualism. And I thought that was really cool. And basically 
she should get some Republican votes was my position. I think she's clearly well qualified. She actually seems much more center moderate than a lot of people made her out to be. And I, all that's good stuff in my personal view. So that was kind of the position I take. So sort of like you said, calling some balls and strikes on arguments that each side was making and, and why I thought she was going to be a great justice and we were lucky to have her, which for the record was something I said about Amy Coney Barrett too. I think she was a supremely qualified justice. I think we're lucky to have her on the court. I had some gripes with the process in that case, but that was separate from my view of her as being someone who is totally qualified to be on the court. What's really powerful. And I, again, I urge people to, to go to the link and, and take a look at some of these daily big topic hits, because what I think really comes through is it's a very compelling way to think about this. You hear the arguments from each side and you kind of see how, I mean, much of media construction these days is sort of aimed at giving each side like a cheat sheet, like a, here are your best arguments to argue your side loudly into a wall. And, and you give some of that. You, you, you give some of the, here's what the, the most coherent arguments from each side are saying. And then you really do provide a, a sort of a nuanced read on it. And it, it straddles the line between news reporting and opinion and analysis. You're, you're, you're doing kind of a very interesting blend of both. And I think the Katanji Brown Jackson story is, is a perfect, it, it fits neatly into that box because you can really, as you showed, as you kind of walked through it a moment ago, you can really productively do that kind of thing. It does seem to get a little bit harder when you deal with really contentious issues where, where the reporting is part of the story, like the Hunter Biden charges, what do you even call it? Sort of like laptop plus the story <laughs> that, that he's going through or the, the John Durham investigation where the it's a very meta idea where the reporting or lack of reporting on the story is part of the story. And the way you cover it, and if you cover it at all, is sort of a shibboleth for which side of the divide do you do you come down? Does that make some sense to you? Because it's like that's that's just embedded in a lot of 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 media these days is those kinds of editorial choices. And by covering or not covering a story like that, you're sort of you're you're sort of having to kind of jump onto sides with that. Do you, do you find those kinds of stories more challenging? And, and do you see that dilemma when, in certain kinds of stories? Yeah, definitely. So first thing, there, there are kind of three things I want to say about that, I think. Number one, just about the general presenting these arguments from the left and the right. One of the really important things, in my opinion, is that generally speaking, what you see in the current media ecosystem is people on the right or the left elevating the worst arguments that the other side is making and then trying to use that to define the entire side. So one of the right. things that I'm really- like, aha. To, Right, yeah, exactly. Yes. It's like you can be somebody who is a liberal and just- point to like Charlie Kirk or somebody who's just prone to say intentionally offensive, outlandish, ill-informed things, and then say, this is the entire conservative movement. I know a lot of liberals who have never even approached or 
broken through in like the really intellectual conservative movement, like the, like the things the conservative movement is deeply rooted in. They, they don't read people like that. So what I'm trying to do in the newsletter is both give representation to that firebrand conservative mindset, because that is representative of a sect of conservatism. And I don't want to pretend it doesn't exist, but I also want to give them the arguments that I think in my personal opinion, are stronger, but are also very representative of a big sect of the Republican Party. And that goes both ways. It happened. Conservatives do the same thing to liberals. They'll elevate the furthest left people they can find and make them try and define them as being representative of the whole party. I think like the defund the police thing is a very good example of that, that this is a really small sliver of the Democratic Party. The party as a whole has basically rejected the idea entirely, including President Biden, who wants more funding for police. Yet conservatives successfully branded the entire Democratic Party as being against funding the police, which is just like a total misnomer. It's just not true. There's no factually, it's not true. So both sides do. The second thing is that One of the very few things that I'm a tyrant about as a person on staff is story selection. So that is something that I do and only I do. Nobody else gets a say in that. Sometimes I'll pull readers about stuff they're interested in, which is interesting for me to see. And I use that information sometimes to decide, but ultimately I make the decision. And that is because story selection is an act of bias itself. And I've done a really, really, really intentional job of immersing myself both in conservative and liberal media spaces. So I understand kind of what's buzzing on each side. And then the final thing is that when I'm choosing those stories, my general philosophy is that the topic that we pick is worth covering if either side is spending a lot of time talking about it. So it doesn't necessarily require that both sides are splashing the story on the front page. You brought up the Hunter Biden story. That's a great example. So again, this is just my personal politics is I am generally speaking very against censorship, deplatforming, whatever. I I don't really, there's a whole free speech cancel culture thing wrapped into that. But the important thing is that when this Hunter Biden story first broke back in 2020 and the New York Post published these kind of raunchy photos and emails and all this stuff that also had some really important national security, international news, breaking news stuff inside, the story was censored in a lot of places, plain and simple. I mean, Twitter and throttled it. Facebook reduced its reach. Twitter later, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey later apologized for doing that, said it was a mistake. And a lot of media companies just ignored it. And to your point, by covering the story, which I did at the time, I drew a lot of ire from people on the left who thought that me even writing about the story was sort of an act of bias, like you said. I personally feel quite vindicated in that decision because now a year and a half later or whatever it's been, the New York Times is covering the story. It's becoming a lot more mainstream. It's basically accepted now that the emails that were in that New York Post story were real. I still have a ton of criticism about the story. I thought the way the Post handled the story was really trashy. I thought they didn't need to be posting naked pictures of Hunter Biden to break a story that he was trying to rope his dad into business dealings in Ukraine. None of that was necessary. There's tons of good criticism there. There's tons of good criticism about the fact they didn't share the source material for the story with any other news outlets, which sort of prohibited them from covering it in any kind of reliable way. All that stuff is great, but it was a real story. I thought it was real. I thought the emails were real at the time. I turned out to be right. I'm not always right, but took a little bit of a victory lap on that. So covering that story is an act of bias in some people's eyes, but in in my view, it's better to give that story coverage 
and also share the left's criticism about how the story was handled or why people were so skeptical of it in that coverage. Because if you're doing it explicitly, if you're saying this is what the left is saying, this is what the right is saying, it does really give people a chance to see this full holistic view of how how the story should be treated. And I think that that's really important. And often say in the newsletter, in my take, I'll just say, I don't know. If I don't feel like I know, or I don't feel really strong about my opinion, I'll be like, I don't really know what the answer is. Here are a few things I think. Here are some things I've observed about these arguments. Take it or leave it. And one of the things my readers often tell me that they really love about the newsletter is that they don't feel like they're being told what they should believe. They feel like they're getting a genuine opportunity to make up their mind. And they simultaneously put a lot of weight into my opinion. So I'm effectively holding some of my sway without trying to sort of beat people over the head with it, which to me was kind of like a wake up aha moment that you can give people room and space to disagree with you. I often share reader feedback emails that come in where people write in to disagree with my point. And if I'm like, oh, that's a good point, I'll put it in the newsletter the next day and say, this person wrote me a new one. I think they're kind of right. Here it is. And people love that. They want that. They're genuinely thirsty for that kind of dialogue right now in the country. And I do think that is real. That attitude's growing. You make a compelling argument. And in a way, it seems like what you're trying to do is to solve one of the most intractable problems with information consult consumption and media in the modern world. I mean, this is a problem that the major social media platforms, I hate that term, it's a buzzword, the companies haven't been able to solve when it comes to misinformation and disinformation. It's a problem that I was discussing with our, our recent guest, Mark Jacob, former editor at Chicago Tribune and Chicago Sun-Times, who said it's gotten to the point where there is an asymmetry here in the amount of BS that's being put out between the right and the left. And he said, you can't, as an editor, you can't just ignore that. And the best thing you can do is apply a truth sandwich to things that are untrue. But you can see, you can at least see the argument, just going back to the Hunter Biden story example for a second, you can at least see the argument from the left. And I've had this argument offline, not in a public space with, I'm a kind of center left Democrat. And I, I've had this argument with center right Republican friends of mine, where it's like, I can see the counter argument from an institution like the New York Times, which is like, look, a lie makes it around the world twice before the truth puts its pants on. And there, or the, the modern version of it is Brandolini's law, which is the BS asymmetry principle. It takes what is it like double the amount of energy to disprove a falsehood than to put it out in the first place? So the argument at the time that I think is so hard to deal with is if we merely parrot the existence of this story, even if we apply a truth sandwich, even if we add context, even if we take the, the hardest thing to say in the world is what you say, which is, I don't know. I just don't know. Even if you apply all of those best practices, you have to ask yourself inside an, an editorial room, are we still doing more harm than good? Are we doing a disservice to our readers by advancing a story like that? And it seems like one thing you may have achieved through Tangle is that you've created a little bit of a community where people do feel like they can come back to you with the sense and 
give feedback and say, here's where you're wrong. And then you print that. And there's a conversation and there's some nuance possible. And I just wonder if that's really possible in the rest of the legacy media world. Is it, I mean, are you doing something kind of, kind of unique that can only be done in a somewhat smaller and curated news community like you've created? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, there is selfishly, there's part of me that wants this to be very unique to Tangle because then I'm the guy sitting on the golden egg. But, but I, I think there are a few things that I do in the newsletter that a lot of legacy media outlets could very easily do, but don't do that I think sort of address some of the issues that you're talking about. Number one is I track corrections in the newsletter and I put them at the very top of the newsletter. I don't hide them as a footnote on the 10th page. I don't ghost edit stories when I make a mistake. I mean, I literally, I put the correction up. I spend two or three sentences explaining how I screwed up, why I screwed up, no matter how embarrassing it is. And then I tell people this is the 57th correction in Tangle's 140 week history. And I track corrections as a way to maximize transparency with readers. And people love it. I mean, it is like the thing I get the most positive feedback about is just owning a mistake. The second thing is what I'm doing by publishing reader feedback is not, I didn't come up with that idea. I mean, it's letters to the editor. I'm just right. putting it at the top of the newsletter. I'm, I'm featuring it again, instead of hiding it on the back page, which I, I think is really important. You don't have to have a newspaper that's full of reader comments or whatever, but you can, you can show some level of balance and self-awareness and humility by featuring the comments your readers make in the same way that you might feature your own thinking. I don't know exactly how that looks on the New York Times. Maybe it's just having very heavily featured letters to the editor section that is like visible on the opinion page rather than being something you have to click or through or search for or whatever. But I think it's important and I think it, it builds trust with people, just those two simple things. The thing that I do do that is much harder for a New York Times or Washington Post or Wall Street Journal to do is that I actually try and reply to every email that I get, which takes wow. an extraordinary amount of work. It is probably like half the time I spend um, working is replying to, to reader emails. And there are two reasons, well, three reasons, I guess, really, that it's it's super worthwhile for me. One is it keeps me really sharp and it's good to read the stuff that comes in because I have a ton of smart readers and people who are experts in fields that I'm not experts in who are writing in about stuff that I covered and they, they keep me honest and I learn a lot from doing it. The second thing is that it makes people feel really seen. A lot of people are just screaming into the void. And the first time I reply to people in the newsletter, I would say 85% of the time, the first thing they say back to me is, oh my God, I can't believe you answered my email. I mean, it's like, these are people who have been writing and posting and commenting on news outlets their entire lives. And now somebody's finally like, hey, I heard you, I see you, whatever. And usually, especially if they're pissed off, that alone turns the temperature down like a hundred degrees, just the act of replying. And then the third thing is, and this is just being totally honest and transparent, is it's a really good business model. The other thing that happens like one in five of those times that I reply to somebody for the first time is I see them immediately go become a paying subscriber to mm. the newsletter. That's a big thing that happens. It's just like, 
it makes them feel a connection and makes them a more loyal reader. They're like, oh, this is awesome. I really want to support this thing. And they go become a subscriber, which is great for me. I, I, I like to think I would do it anyway. I did it anyway for a long time, even before I had paying subscriptions. But I see that very often that it is a really good way to drive people to just subscribe and support the newsletter because they like the fact that somebody's there and listening and paying attention and, and sort of hearing what they have to say. First of all, I heartily endorse that approach. It's the approach that I take on social media myself, especially on Facebook and Twitter, where it's just, it's part of the experience is you're going to get criticized for the things you say. And frequently, especially when it comes with a character limit, that, that criticism is going to be brusque and it's going to be not particularly nuanced. It's going to be kind of flamey. And I have tried over time to to give a, a thoughtful response to the people who flame at me, I would say, and this restores some of my faith in humanity, about 75% of the time, I reach a, a sort of detente with that person. And then we end up following each other on Twitter. And it, it, it forges kind of a nice connection, even one where we don't totally agree on a lot of things. And I, I, I do that in part for myself. It's selfish because it makes me feel good about relationships with humanity intermediated through social media, which I, I generally think is, is a pretty terrible way to deal with other human beings. But you were alluding a moment ago to your business model. And I want to talk about that because it says right up top, you're independent, you're ad-free, and you're nonpartisan, which sort of begs a question, how would you say you make money doing this? And it's it's an important question when it comes to, I mean, this this comes up with a lot of legacy media all the time. Where do they get their money? Who's funding it? Who, who wants to advertise? What kind of audiences do they want to reach? So why is this your business model and how is it working? Yeah, it's a great question. So there are a couple of really big decisions that I made super early on that were informed by my experience in media and just what I thought would probably work. One was that I wasn't going to run ads in the newsletter. The podcast that we do actually has one ad from Anchor, which is the platform we use to distribute the podcast. And it helps me break even, and I'm very transparent about that. But the newsletter has always been ad-free. The website has always been ad-free. They always will be. And the reason that I do that is sort of twofold. One is that ads are intrusive. They suck for readers. Nobody likes them really. Two is that whenever you have an advertisement, you are sort of becoming culpable in some way for either A, what that brand does, or B, what you have to do once that brand becomes part of the coverage or the story that you're covering. And I can give a really good example about that in a minute. And then the other thing that I decided was that I was going to be investor free, which was something that I learned from serving and freelancing for and working for different media companies, which is that as many times as media companies want to talk about the kind of wall between editorial and the business side, that wall comes down in really big high pressure moments. It just does. And people who are investors in a media company who have the money have the control. And I didn't want to give up any of my editorial control to anybody. So even early on in Tangle, a lot of people who really liked what I was doing and I have a little bit of a Twitter following, I had people reach out to me. I had VCs reach out to me, ask if I wanted seed money and stuff. And it was really hard to say, like, keep your $50,000. But I just knew that if I did that, they were eventually going to have a problem with something I wrote. And then there was going to be this moment where it's like, do I 
change my view a little bit to fit what they think is cool or do I lose the money? And I didn't want to run into that at all. The other thing that everybody does and that I was told to do was to make your free content a small fraction of what you do and paywall the rest of it. So everybody has experienced this online. You read two articles on a news story and then a pop-up comes up and says, you're out of free articles. If you want to read the other 10,000 things we have, you have to subscribe. I inverted that model. So the vast majority of our content is free. We send five newsletters a week. Four of them are free. So 80% of our content, all you have to do is give me your email address. You get it for free. And then Friday editions, we paywall. That to me was a strategic move. There wasn't really anything ethical about that. I mean, I, I think paywalls keep a lot of people who can't afford it out of really reliable news, which sucks. And so I was very happy to, to offer four out of five newsletters for free. But in my mind, it never made sense if I'm sending four newsletters to 10,000 people for free, the odds of one of those newsletters going viral or being shared a bunch is much higher than if I'm only sending one of them. So I just wanted more opportunities to catch fire and, and get a foothold with some people. And then the fifth newsletter is the Friday newsletters are behind a paywall. So only paying subscribers get them. So I entice people to become subscribers by making the Friday editions a little bit different. That's more of like I do interviews and I'll transcribe the interviews. I do more original in-depth reporting. I cover reader requested content. Like I was talking about before, sometimes I just write a personal essay. So instead of the right left format, you just get like, that's what I'm doing tomorrow. Actually, I'm writing just like an opinion piece. That's just me. And it's labeled that way. And this is my view and people are willing to pay for that. So it's been really successful for me. I have over 5,000 paying subscribers to the newsletter now, which is about 15% of my readership, which is I was told when I started the newsletter that I could expect to convert 5%, maybe 10% at the highest, and I'm doing 30% better than that. So I'm really stoked about that. We offer subscriptions at $5 a year, $50 a year, or $199 a year, which if you subscribe at that high rate, I give you like a quarterly business update. So I treat those subscribers kind of like my investors. I tell them what's going on in the media world, what I'm doing, that sort of stuff. They just get kind of like another little layer of inside information. And yeah, I mean, we're going to do $300,000 in annual recurring revenue this year. The last job I had in journalism, I was making $70,000 a year. So it's, I mean, from a business perspective and a sustainability perspective, I went from fighting for a job and fighting for $1,500 raises to hiring a team of freelancers and social media people creating journalism jobs in the space and we're growing. So to me, it's like a, it's a, it's a winning model. It works. People are willing to pay. I think people are starting to understand you have to pay for good news and it's, it's really exciting for me. First of all, I really appreciate your transparency about the actual figures of dollars and cents because it's important. It's important to, given all of the virtual ink that's been spilled over the death of local and regional reporting and the news deserts that are popping up across America. This is this, I think, is part and parcel of the problem in media. And actually, that's kind of where I want to turn just as we close out the show here is the problem in media. We started off at the top. I sort of define the problem as well, everyone likes their own version of media comfort food. That's what they go to consume. But we've kind of brought in some other problems along the way, right? Which is, first of all, the, the social media Brandolini principle, BSA symmetry, that it's, 
it's hard for media organizations to know what to give time and space to and, and what to report on and how to make those decisions. You're, you're sort of playing into one agenda or another. And then there's the who pays the piper calls the tune problem, which you've experienced through the offers of VC funding. But every legacy media organization has a version of that. They're, they're struggling with a business model. So what does the future look like? Not everyone, not everyone is going to seek out what you're offering, which is sort of, you're trying to create the Michelin one-star restaurant of, of information and news next to the McDonald's. People can get the seemingly free McDonald's out of their Facebook feeds, and it's full of a lot of crap that'll kill you over time, or they can get the highly curated and very artisanal Tangle product, but it's so hard to tell the difference. How do we solve this problem? How, how do we fix the media ecosystem? Yeah, it's a really good question. The incentives, in my opinion, are totally broken. So one of the big issues until I think really the last three or four years was just that advertising was the funding source for media companies. So the really simple way to think about that is the more views an advertisement got, the more valuable it was. So media companies had very clear incentives that if they drove the page views and the traffic and the ratings up, the ads they could sell on that traffic became higher price, they make more money. So what's the obvious thing to do? You get more sensational, you create clickbait, you feed your audience what they want. So they're reading what it is more often and they're sharing it and all that stuff. And that is sort of like how we got into the problem that we're in now. And then the advertising industry started to die for a bunch of different reasons in the media world. And so what a lot of really premium news outlets started to do, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, they leaned really hard into the subscription model. But the issue with that, like I said about my own model, is that most people in America, believe it or not, are actually, it, it's a question of whether they're going to spend $50 a year on something to get their news, or in the case of the Wall Street Journal, $15 or $20 a month. A, a very huge chunk of our country is low-wage workers who make anywhere from $30 to $45,000 a year, and spending $50 on a website when they can just get the news for free somewhere else is not a decision that a lot of them are going to make. And the problem with that is that whether you hate the New York Times or you hate the Wall Street Journal or whatever, they have the most money. So they hire the best reporters. So they produce the most reliable news that goes through the most editors and is the most fact-checked. They're the least likely to make really big mistakes or spread misinformation. Traditionally speaking, I'm not saying that's always true. I'm just saying on net, that's typically the case. And so a lot of people, like you said, they're going to the McDonald's of news. What I would love to see is those organizations, those news organizations sharing more of their work for free. Mm. Now, I know that they have to make money, but I also think that I am proof that the sort of high volume of free content can actually pay off in the business model. The other thing that we're starting to see now that I think is actually encouraging is a lot more people doing the hybrid model of both advertising and subscribing and subscriptions. And the really cool thing about that is that it makes you less reliant on both of them, which has all sorts of benefits, mainly that you can keep the kind of editorial mission true to the editorial mission, and you don't bend to the whim of either the advertisers or the subscribers. There's a trap in all of this. So I'm a 
big nuance guy. I think like the asterisk on everything here is part of what we're seeing in, in my crew, the people I often get associated with, which is like the kind of heterodox doing it a little bit differently, is that being heterodox can become an ideology of its own. Um, we saw this on full display, in my opinion, with the war in Ukraine recently. So, so, so many people on the right and left who are independent writers, who have newsletters like I do and subscription base and just like a small loyal fan base, they were just beating the mainstream media's lying to you drum and they all got it wrong. They said there was no chance Putin was going to invade. It was the NATSEC community and the conservative hawks were just drumming up fear because they wanted another war. And then he did exactly what all the experts were saying, which is like a reminder that oftentimes the mainstream narrative is true because that's why it's the mainstream narrative is there's the most evidence for it. So there is a trap there that like I'm also a little bit worried about, which is being really intentionally heterodox is an ideology. Being centrist is an ideology. I can't remember where I heard the joke, but it's like the left wants to build a bridge. The right says it costs too much money. The centrist is like, all right, let's just build it halfway across their lake. Like th that's a problem. That's not a good answer. And so like, that, yeah, there's like, there's a, there's an issue there too. So it, it, there's, there's kind of, none of this stuff is simple is basically what I'm getting at. I think the biggest thing that needs to happen is what we're witnessing right now, which is people are becoming aware of it. Five, 10 years ago, I could talk about this stuff and would talk about this stuff. And people would be like, whoa, you're like telling me my Twitter feeds just like feeding me the news that I want to see, like it was like new at a, at a point. There was a time when people like didn't really believe that it felt kind of conspiratorial. And now it's like, everybody knows that they have news habits that are reinforcing their views or not everybody, but a lot of Americans are, are familiar with this idea. And I think going to seek out different views, they understand that like, maybe I have to pay for content if I want it to be really quality. I think all of that stuff is changing. So my hope is that we're sort of witnessing the beginning of the shift, but there's no great answer. I think it's going to take some sacrifice on both sides in order to make it happen. Some, some revenue sacrifice from the media organizations and some financial sacrifice from the consumers who you have to understand journalists need to make money. We need to make money. We have to go home and eat and pay rent too. And we can't give everything away for free. So it, it requires your support oftentimes to, to get there. Well, if this is resonating with you, if you're listening to this, there are a few things you could do. First of all, subscribe to this podcast to Beyond Politics. We also do not run ads on the podcast. The, on the radio, there are ads. You probably, if you're listening to this on the radio, you, you heard one a few minutes ago. That's an important part of the business model for radio. But we also try to create nuanced, thoughtful, balanced intelligent conversations here in this space. So subscribe to this show and go into the show notes and click on that link and check out Tangle. I really think you'll be glad you did. It's it's a really interesting read. And Isaac, I commend you for creating this newsletter. I, I think it's it, it, it's just a very interesting contribution to the media space. And I wish you much success and thanks for being on Beyond Politics. Thanks so much, Matt. It was a blast. I really appreciate it. 